it's uh, just noticed Sheila Vomplin is here, so that's why I stutter. It's so great to see a, an Italian friend from uh, many years ago, and I think there's Italy behind me on the screen. It's a new year. Let me say I'm so grateful for um, the community of faith that meets here at Delreda. I'm grateful for its leadership. I'm grateful for a new calendar. I don't know what your resolutions are. I've never done the diet thing before, but I'd, I'm trying it this time. I'd like to lose a few pounds. I'll probably fail. But what I'd like not to fail in is what the elders have uh, challenged all of us, uh, those that serve here as part-time ministers, full-time ministers, and the, the members as well last week, which is to find a new gear, to find an extra gear. If we've been in fourth gear, we've, we find the fifth, we find the sixth of uh, this engine called faith and living out our faith in our times. 2018 is a great, a great time to kick it into another gear. Um, the mission efforts of this congregation are outstanding. In terms of financial uh, budget, it's, around, it's been around 330000 but um, there's more this year. And then there's a mission day in May in which the challenge is, let's raise 100000 more. What can we do with more? What can you do more? And so as one of the efforts in what else can we do, uh, there is also this one. Uh, tentatively, uh, two or three times a year, uh, we're going to give an opportunity for you to step outside of not just Montgomery, but a lot further than that. And yes, if you don't speak Italian, only about one in five Italians speak some English. So this will be outside your comfort zone. But, uh, so I'm announcing right now, if you're interested, next week we'll have a meeting. But um, in the dates that you see on the screen from the end of July, the 21st to the 31st, um, I'll be taking a group of five to ten, as many as want to go, uh, with my wife, Kim. Um, she's been over there ten years of her life. I've been 25. It's my um, second culture. It's what I dream in. But it's the other side of the world that I love. It's, um, it's, uh, it's about people. And uh, sometimes we can find it inconvenient to door knock right here in our neighborhood. But once we have gotten on a plane and gone... Uh, uh, 17 hours to the other side of the world, and once we have seen the faces, even though we haven't understood much of the language that's going on, but seen the faces, seen the expressions of faith in, in those of another culture, and seen from the view of God, who sees the church universal, and he sees it all at the same time, and he speaks all the languages, and understands all the prayers, and all the pleadings, and all the hope, and all the struggles, God who sees all. We get a glimpse of what God sees when we step out of our boundaries. So if you'd like to go to um, the campaign, uh, hopefully in the fall, there'll be one to either Madagascar or to the Ukraine, other works that we support. In the spring, maybe one to a little closer than here, a Spanish-speaking country. But uh, once you've gone on one of these, you come back changed. Um, not because you were effective in, in leading studies, because if you don't speak the language, you might be able to, but you can do a lot more than that. You can encourage the church. You can broaden your perspective of what the church is, for one. 
And uh, you can encourage those that are far away and don't have 33 churches within, within their hinterland here in Montgomery, don't have the kind of support that we have, don't have the kind of facilities that we have. You can understand the mission of the church and the view that God has maybe. So we're going to be flying into Pisa, Florence and working with the Avantitalia program there. Um, that, that is a work that we support to the tune of $500 a month in our budget right now. And the specific uh, person over there is named Becca Gibbs, and uh, she has been over there a year. And uh, I hope that we'll continue supporting other young people that go there and give two years of their life after they've graduated from college to do mission work in a foreign field, learn the language, and take students and teach uh, English using the Bible. Catania, Sicily will be the main main place. That's down in Sicily, so we're going to have to catch a train, go down to Rome, catch a plane, go down to the island of Catania. And uh, this is back in 2015, last time I was with that congregation. There are only two over there that have eldership. They are, however, the largest congregation in Italy. In Italy. There are about 35 congregations. Some are only five members up in the mountains. And instead, Catania is just a hop, skipping away from the epicenter of the mafia. But they need the gospel too. The mafia does. <laughs> and the largest church there is right there in Catania. And they have elders. And so they have follow-up you can go there to encourage. You can go there to shadow some of their people. You can teach children's classes. And every night there will be lectures. And uh, I am negotiating with them what are the best topics that are best for outside people. Because they still do have outside people. There may be a Catholic priest that comes. There may be uh, he comes to challenge more than to we're not used to that. But there may be a different setting. But uh, once you've seen that, it's different. Uh, one of the elders of the congregation is in the picture that's up to the right, the, the gentleman towards the right. And these are other real faces that God knows well and that you might if you want to accept this challenge. So um, because of passport and high season, I need you not to worry about the money, but worry about whether you can make place in your schedule, whether you want to accept this challenge. And so next Sunday, I'll offer a meeting for information and there will be other opportunities, but this is the first one. We want to take it up into a higher gear. We want to take it, to, take it to, to where we all understand even more than we have in the past, the mission of the church, not just in giving, but in go, going as well. And even if you can't go and speak the language to whatever you can do, we will make sure that we utilize and you will have a love for the Italians, 56 million people. They think they know the church, but it's the version that they have heard has been uh, kidnapped. It is an incorrect version of what Christ died for. And it, uh, gives, uh, it, it doesn't give a picture. And you can show what living, breathing, honest faith is in the New Testament church. There is a connection between the topic that I'm going to speak on briefly now and uh, the, the work that I've just encouraged you to consider You've got a week. Tell me about passport, whether you have it or not, and tell me whether you can make room in your calendar and everything else will work out somehow. I think that the letter to the Hebrews, the reading was from there. I hope your Bible is open to that, chapter 1. I um, think that the letter of the Hebrews was actually written to a group of believers that was in the capital of, of the empire of that time, 20 centuries ago. Why is the question that I'm going to actually pose. Some of you know Hebrews better than I, but um, I'd like to pose it. Why is the letter of Hebrews in the New Testament? There's got to be a purpose for it. 
Everything is intentional. God doesn't accidentally do anything. If he protected this letter so that you and I could have it, even though it is one of the most difficult to read. Ah, Leviticus has got to be the most difficult of the Old Testament because it's like a study in case law. In the Old Testament, if you do your daily Bible reading, I hope you do throughout this year, when you get to Leviticus, it's pull your hair out time. Oh my, let's get through this. It's inspired, but... And then there's the two New Testament letters that are the hardest to teach, to preach, to read. There is revelation. Of course, it's written in code. It's written in symbolic language. And, and there's so much that you want to know more about it. But there are certain things that may remain not quite understood. But the fundamentals are, uh, which is very similar, ironically, with the other letter that's very hard to read in the New Testament. It is the book of Hebrews, second most difficult, in my opinion, of course, letters. Now, there are some of you that have taught this letter that feel strongly, oh, no, it's not. But let me just uh, say that it is to me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a letter that's, uh, that's complicated. So I ask, why? Why is it there? What good is it? It's relevant to us today. What can it do? Well, let's consider the following things just as an introduction, because all I'm going to do tonight is step in uh, in moments of Hebrews and then capture the main theme of it. That's the lesson of tonight. Where is it in the New Testament? We're not sure of the place of origin from where it was written, but uh, I'm going to suggest that it may have been written uh, from Rome or to Rome, and maybe that's my connection to Italy. You see, there's a letter in the New Testament called the Book of Romans, and it's written by Paul, who'd never been to Rome, in about the year 55. But this letter is written about 10 years later, towards the end of the apostolic age, so to speak. And it's written afterwards. And it has a place in the canon. The canon is the list of inspired works that the church fathers preserved for you and I to have. There are 27 of them. There could have been 300. They were very meticulous. They were very careful. We have lots of lists of early church, 2nd century, 3rd century. And uh, the 27 that made it through the sorting out, the living up to the standard, okay, were they eyewitnesses? Are they apostles? Are they uh, um, uh, followers, disciples of the apostles? Are they eyewitnesses of what Jesus said? Are they eyewitnesses of apostolic teachings? That was the standard that the early church fathers used. And they threw away into the trash about 270 others that didn't fit that and kept the 27. And Hebrews is one of them. And since it's so specific to a particular kind of audience, so it is a logical question to ask why. Why, God, did you have us keep the book of Hebrews? Why? Okay. We have a very early copy of the book of Hebrews. We are very certain that we have the original Writings that it hasn't been manipulated or expanded by some copyists through the centuries. We have a papyrus that goes back to nearly the year 200, just 140 years after it was written. That's astounding as literature goes that you have a copy of something that goes back that close to the original of that time. It's 19th. You know the song, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts and a letter to the Romans. And then you go on, and when you get down, you go through all the epistles of Paul. And then, after you get to the shortest epistle of Paul, which is Philemon, you get to the book of Hebrews, which is a lot longer than Philemon, and a lot harder to understand. Philemon 
is a, a letter that it too you could say, I wonder why God have us kept that one. That's a personal letter of Paul to a church leader who had a slave. It's about a runaway slave. It's about how you handle with love a very sensitive topic like slavery, which we don't have anymore. So why is that relevant to us? Well, there are principles embedded in those 23 verses of Philemon that are very applicable to you and I today. And in the 13 chapters, complicated chapters, very theologically based and full of Judaism, boy, you got to know where they were coming from, these Christians that had converted away from Judaism, because that, those are the recipients of this letter. Why was it placed 19th by the church fathers? Why was it placed in that order? Because the Holy Spirit didn't dictate that. The Holy Spirit protected it from error, but it's church fathers that decided to put it after Paul. And it's, here's the easy answer to that question. It's because they, they thought that it might be by Paul. They were not sure. They did not have the authorship of it, so they just tagged it on to the letters of Paul just in case. When they got to heaven, Paul said, hey, that was my letter. Why'd you put it separate from the rest? I think that's maybe the reason for that. It's like a sermon. It's a complicated sermon. It's a sermon where you're going to have to have drink, drank your coffee before you come. You can't be worn out. You have to pay attention. You're going to have to prop your eyelids open. This one's, this one's going to take more than 25 minutes that you and I usually grant a preacher. It's going to take a lot longer than that to read through. It's a sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount. That one only takes about eight minutes to read. Or the one chapter of Stephen's sermon, that only, if it's a summary, it only takes about, well, four minutes to read. A lot of verses in that chapter, but still. And that was the end of his life. It's like Paul's sermon to the synagogues. We have several examples of that, of the kind of sermon that as he went into various synagogues through the 30 years that he preached in his mission work, he had a standard sermon that he would give because he already knew where they were at. He was a Jew, and he knew where they were at waiting for the Messiah, so all he had to do was tell them about that Messiah, that he had come and he was a carpenter who had died on a cross, killed by the Jewish leadership. It's kind of like... Um, a sermon like the one he gave to a very different audience. The philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as recorded in Acts chapter 17. It's a sermon. It's a sermon. It's not a treatise, although it can feel like it, especially in its length and its organization. I don't know who wrote it. It doesn't really matter. That seems strange to say, because one of the tests of should it be in the New Testament or not is that we know the author. But see, the church fathers felt secure about this one for whatever reason. Could it be Paul? It's a possibility. Others have suggested, church fathers and theologians, it could be by Barnabas. I like Barnabas, the encourager, the one who went on his first missionary journey with Paul. I like that. He was a Jerusalem Jew who also had a, a, a strong take on Judaism. So yet that, that sounds right. And he must have spoken Greek very well. It could be Apollos. He's complimented in Acts chapter 19 by Luke as a very learned man. Maybe it's him. It's a good option. Only problem is none of the church fathers mention him, and it doesn't appear as an option until the 16th century with Martin Luther. Others suggest Epaphras. He's a church member missioned by Paul in one of his letters. Silas, of course, that accompanied Paul the second missionary journey. 
Priscilla is highly unlikely because the grammar of the book of Hebrews mentions the, uh, that uh, the author is a male. And so uh, that one may be the wish of someone that there be a feminine author within the New Testament, but that's not, uh, it's not conducive to the actual letter itself. It might be Luke. If so, then that clearly makes him the writer of the New Testament that wrote more verses, more chapters than anybody else. I like Timothy a lot. He's co-writer, co-sender with Paul of six of his letters, but, but um, uh, Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13 and verse 23, so why would he mention himself? That doesn't make sense. Church father that's well known, maybe you don't know him, but Clement of Rome, but the problem is in these letters he quotes the book of Hebrews. So yes, people sometimes quote themselves, but I don't think Clement did that. I think it's from the end of the apostolic era when Peter and Paul have already been executed. But before a dramatic event in history that this letter was written, before the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple, surely if, if that had happened, an author writing to Jews that knows so much about Judaism, he had to be a Jew himself, would have, would have mentioned that the Romans had utterly destroyed the house of God. Even though, of course, Christ said, don't put your heart in that 40 years before. He said, that's not going to be around. He had said it, Matthew chapter 24, prophetically. It clearly is a time of persecution. But the question is, who's persecuting? You see, for the first 35 years of the early church, it was Jews that were persecuting the church. They did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So they put him on the cross and they tried to stop the apostles too. They failed. But I don't think it's the Jews anymore. I think it's the new persecutors, the ones who had been neutral or even protect early Christianity, which are the Romans. You see, around 65, the tide changed. And I think that persecution that he's referring to is in the capital, and it's Jewish Christians that are being persecuted in Rome. I can't prove it for sure, but that's my take on what's going on here. It's a sermon. It's a beautiful sermon of encouragement it's very structured, it's not haphazard, it's very intentional, and it has a beautiful style and language. Not that that matters, but you need to know that the New Testament, inspired by God, has the best of men. Forty different authors the Bible has, and they come from all, all walks of life. And the one that wrote Hebrews, whoever he was, was very good writer, outstanding. You and I read it in English, and it's difficult, but the Greek, the original, is absolutely marvelous. It's absolutely marvelous. He has over 150 words that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. His vocabulary is very rich. He has 90 that are found only in one other New Testament book and 10 that are found nowhere else, even in Greek literature. So he, we, he even uses vocabulary. So this, this author, wherever he was, Apollos, maybe Barnabas, I don't know. doesn't matter. It's inspired. It's protected by God. Is the best Greek that's around. You see, the Bible can t pass that test too. It's, it's, uh, it's written in a literary form, but, but of course the content is what really matters. But you need to know that, for example, it, it rises to the standards of human excellence and human standards of this is great literature. But that's not really the important point. To whom was it written? I've already suggested. Jewish Christians, that's clear. You've got to know Judaism to get much, you you got to study Judaism to get much out of the letter of Hebrews. So how is it relevant to us today? And I'm going to finish up with just a few pointers there. It's not written to a particular church. 
You know, there are letters written to a particular church. Colossians, Ephesians, there are letters written. But uh, it's not even written to a group of churches. Like, for example, Galatians, written to a group of churches in Galatia. It's not that. It's not written to an individual like Philemon. It's not. The title Prosebraios, the title in Greek, is a later edition, so it has no title. The recipients, however, are clear. They were Jews that had converted to Christianity. And they are second generation, because this is written in the late 60s, in the second generation Jewish Christians who spoke Greek very well. So they lived, probably had grown up all their life outside of uh, Palestine, probably in the dispersion, and Greek had been the language in which they had heard the Old Testament, and now Greek, beautiful Greek, was the language in which the writer of Hebrews was writing his format, and he had a few things to say. These things we might suggest, and then I'll drop into the text, and the lesson is yours. He longed, the author, wherever he was, to be reunited with them. You can see the attachment, the fellowship, the love. I long to be with my Italian brethren in Catania again. I don't know if you can tell. I'll miss you while I'm gone. And over there, I'll wish to get back and see you again. But when I'm absent, he longed for his brethren that he, that he, that he knew. He knew the recipients and he longed to see them. He taught, mentions Timothy as a mutual friend of theirs. So it means that Timothy had been there or traveled there or something like that. If it's after 65, it may be that Paul is dead and Timothy, who was there in Rome, is the reason they know him and he's mentioned. He's a male. That's evident from the grammar of chapter 11, verse 32. And there are some that say that he wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus. However, when you read chapter 2, verses 1, or verse 3, when it talks about those who have heard, those of us who have heard, use that verb, that doesn't necessarily imply that the writer had not seen the resurrected Jesus. Now, I do say this, that probably eliminates Paul, because Paul will insist all of his life, there are two reasons why I believe I saw the resurrected Christ and I have heard the resurrected Christ. So it would be strange for him to refer to just hearing from others about Christ. And the writer may have been in Italy or may have left Italy and is writing back to, well, there were 12 synagogues in the capital of Rome that we know in the first century, and that means there were a bunch of Jews that probably converted to the church and were part of that nucleus in the capital of the largest city, the largest city in the world of that time. I'm going to drop in just a few chapters, and then the lesson is yours. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, and many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Long ago, God spoke. God's not silent. He's not a faraway God. He cares about every man from the beginning of time to whenever he calls it the end of time. He cares about you. He cares about me. And he is not a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity. If we are confused, it's because we don't listen and don't seek him out. 
But he spoke. He spoke in the past to the people of, of old times, of the Old Testament, because he has been communicating all of his, uh, to all of his creatures. But in these days is the turn of the Hebrew writer. He says now in the first century, in the time that he's writing, somewhere in the year 65, 66, we have had, he says, the final revelation. He says that no more secrets, no more things to happen, no more revelations. The revelation has happened. The picture has been filled. You can know who the Messiah was, how God fixes the mess that we made. The final revelation has been given. That's still true for us today. There are no more prophets to come. The final revelation. His son, Jesus of Nazareth, we preach Christ and him crucified. He is the son of God. He wasn't created. He he was there from the beginning of time. Through him, all things were created. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He created the world. Jesus Christ was the agent of the creation of this universe and this world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I hope that you were here when Melvin did an outstanding job talking about this esoteric, hard thing to comprehend. Put your mind around it. Glory of God. Great lesson about that. Maybe it's a good night tonight to go back and listen to that one again. For the purification of sins. Yep. No other way. There's no other answer to the sins of mankind. Your sins or anybody else's. He's the one. He's the way. No other way. That's it. And in the process of then giving like evidence for all of this that you've already got what you need. There's nothing better than what you got. Jesus Christ is it. The church is it. The vehicle by which you get to salvation. He says to these Jews that are looking back, he says, listen, look at what you got. Christ is better than angels. Angels don't die. He's better than the prophets. They only had a piece of the picture. He is the picture. He's better than Moses. Moses was an instrument of God, but he can't save you. And neither could the Mosaic law. It was the shadow of things to come, and the things to come is is Christ. The Sabbath was a preparation for a day of of worship, and and now Sabbath has been moved by one day to the Lord's day. This is the day in which we worship Because it's the day in which he resurrected, in which we take the Lord's Supper to remember what he did. Better, better, better. Chapter 2. We must pay much closer attention, says the Hebrew writer, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Uh, This is a lesson from the Hebrew writer on May 2018, a moment when you have less moments of doubt, less moments of weakness. How could you have what you have if you understand what you have? And how could you escape the judgment of God, the, 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 the wrath of God, if you neglect such great a salvation. Do you understand what you have? The Hebrew writer is saying to those original readers of the first century and to you and I, do you understand what you have? Chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, in 2018, be even more of an encourager. Let's encourage each other to be strong in the faith and to kick into that extra gear as a congregation and individually as people. Diets are one thing, but our spiritual, spiritual activity is more important. It's lasting. It's eternal. Weight's not. But salvation is. So confidence. Do you remember your original confidence? Are you still living off of it? Are you nurturing it? Are you living off of it right now? Chapter 5. About this, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Whatever our ages, however long we've been in the faith, 2018 is to grow up, to do better, to be more mature in the faith. Stop drinking milk. Go for solid food. Expect more. Bring more. Do more. All of the above. And watch out. Because some of them have become dull of hearing. I pray to God that I don't go there. Stop listening. Chapter 10. Do not throw away your confidence which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Why is it that we endure what we endure, going against the grain in our culture with our faith? I don't think, if I listen to the Hebrew writer, it's, I think it's okay to say, I do it for the reward. It's not just that by sharing my faith with others here in Montgomery or in Italy, I will hopefully lead to salvation to eternity someone else. But it's also because that is what is good to do. I was put here on earth to do good works, and I have a promised reward of a home in heaven because of it. I think it's okay to say that. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome. You did what you could. You have need of endurance, though, he says. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't let anything throw away your confidence. That was evidently a problem with the Hebrew recipients. They were dispirited, demotivated, and says, going to have to pick it up. Going to have to find your breath. You got the breath knocked out of you. And you're going to have to pick it up. Chapter 11. You know this one? Gotta love this one. Definition of faith. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that is, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God made me and you intelligent, rational creatures, and we can bring to his scripture, to his Bible and his revelation, all kinds of questions and study, and we should and we'd better. On the other hand, after we've done that, it's required we take that step of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, but they're there. They're there. Chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for their joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, the throne of God. I mentioned to you before that when I get to St. Peter's Square in Rome. It's my privilege to go back there, God willing, uh, this July. You stand in there in that magnificent architecture that took 150 years of the best architects and designers to design. But to me, that's less impressive than the image that it reminds me of of Hebrews chapter 12. With 130 statues up there, kind of thought, the cloud of witnesses that went before and you and I like the people in the square are the people that are down in life living out our faith and those are the ones that have gone before up in the stands up there on the edges of Bernini's gigantic columns and they're looking down on us and they're saying you hang in there you show the love of God with every breath that you have Chapter 12 again, lift your drooping hands, pick them up, lift them up. Strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Why Hebrews? Because the first century believers, some of them, a few of them, were looking back. They were having second thoughts. Obviously, they were discouraged. They definitely were forgetful. They were not thinking straight. And so I guess my question is to bring Hebrews' relevance to you and I today. What would it take for you to pull away from Christ? What would it take for you to pull away from the fellowship of his believers? Theoretically, I reckon all of us are capable of that. What would it take? Would the death of someone close to you knock you silly? Would a loss of a relationship, whether it's a girlfriend, boyfriend, or worse, a spouse, would that knock you silly off your feet, off your faith? Would a terrible... Diagnosis, a disease, do that. With social upheavals, what if, what if stuff happens in 2018? 
that really rocks our world, politically or economically or financial instability, old friendships that pull you back in, suck in your world that you should have never been in, but you came out of, but now you're being attracted again. What about family traditions that should have been abandoned and yet haven't? What about old habits that you return to? What, what can knock you? you better, we better take a hard look at that and ask ourselves, what might knock me off my faith? Because, because we need to prepare. California, beginning of the year, was pretty bad. This is a fire. There have been two back last fall. My best friend in college lost his home in that one, but this one's another one from Santa Barbara on down. It's not just the lost homes, lost neighborhoods, but it's also the lost vegetation that, of course, this past week caused all those mudslides. Take that image of a, well, there used to be a house, and now because there were no roots, there was no vegetation, there was no plants, they had been burned by the fire, the mudslides just came at those rains and just brought, brought it down. Spiritually speaking, how deep are your roots? What kind of fire can you endure, survive? Because Hebrews is about hanging in there, not letting the fire, not letting a mudslide pull you out from where you need to be. So here's my take, and then the lesson's yours. We need deep roots. We need deeper roots. We need deeper faith roots this year. We need more understanding. We need to be clear about God's word, and we need to study personally. We need to understand, not rely on other people. We need to resolve. We need to resolve. And we need to be unwavering in our resolve. This year is going to be my best year. We need to have, using the favorite terms of Paul, faith to believe God in everything that he has for us to do in our lifetime, his plans for us. We need to have hope to endure whatever trials may come, personally or congregationally. We need to operate in everything we do by love and encourage each other to hold on and make 2018 our best year to date. So we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Listen to the verses you're going to sing. There's a name that I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. It tells of one whose loving heart can feel my deepest woe, who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. So if you're in Christ... I love Jesus, and 2018 is going to be my best year. If you're not in Christ, come now as we stand and sing.